Go ahead and find Revelation chapter 7, if you will. Um, I want to talk honestly today and at the same time, and I, of course, I would hope there wouldn't be a, there wouldn't be a time when we wouldn't speak honestly. But at the same time, I want to be, what I wrote is pretty formal. The way I deliver this may be kind of informal. Part of it is because we, you know, we're, we're it's really the home folks today, and that's a good thing for us. We, uh, we, I don't have to worry too much about um, offending somebody in this room today because for the most part we, we're, these are the people you can't run off. Um, I, I like that. There's a liberty that comes with that, all right? So we're going to talk about something pretty, to be honest with you, in many ways controversial today. You may not see it that way because I think sometimes I come in and I talk about some things that you really ought to be wary of, but either you just have gotten used to me talking and you don't really pay attention to what I say. That's always a possibility. Okay, when you've been preaching in church as long as I have. And um, as I think my wife mentioned yesterday to me, yesterday, 11 years ago, I was voted in as pastor. A anniversary of small nature, okay, but an anniversary nonetheless. And so, I guess when you've been talking about it, as long as I have, maybe you guys have heard it all before, or you kind of know how I do things, and so, so maybe it doesn't come out as fresh. I want it to kind of be heard as fresh today, okay? Because what I'm really saying today is, is really important for us, and I want everybody to get it. So, so let's read 7, 9 through 12, and then we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, okay? Um, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I love and adore you, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to come before you, Father God, to share in the gospel with your people today, Father God. I pray, God, that, that, that everybody listens. I pray that everybody's tuned in, that, that all the distractions, Father God, can just be um, easily, things that we easily, God, gloss over and that we can just focus, God, with a real gospel, Holy Spirit-driven clarity. That's what I pray for, Father God. I pray that as we hear this, that everyone um, allows it to resonate in their minds, in their hearts. It goes all the way deep, Father God. That's what I'm praying for, God. That everybody hears as deep as they can today. And that everybody understands today, Father God. God, there's just great things. that Even though we're a small church, Father God, there's great spirit, great love here, great commitment, Father God, among our people. That's got to improve, God. There's, there's Others that are part of our family, Father God, that are wayward, that are that are um, not committed, God, and, and we're going to need them, Father God. We we can't function without the whole body that you've called to this place, Father God, together, actually sharing the load, Father God. We need that so much, and so, Father God, I'm praying now, God, that um, that that you start to do this mighty and powerful work, and that, Father God, that as you do it, God that um, incrementally, slowly, Father God, in the way that really builds momentum, you start to change all of our hearts and transform them, Father God, so that they really are aligned with you, God, on the greatest um, missions of the gospel, Father God. That's what I'm praying for, Father. I want to, one of these days, God, when it's my day to leave and not to arrive, I want to be able to look back and say, God, you've transformed this church into, into missional, into a missional and evangelistic um, house of power, Father God. That's what I'm praying for today. So God, do that through us now, Father God. Begin that journey, Father God. We love you and I thank you so much, God, for the gift of your Son, for the gift of His blood that washes away our sins, but also, Father God, for the gift of this church in my life and the life of my family. We love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, we get this thing uh, woke up again and we'll get back to... Okay, here we go. What I said was this, I think a, a, a decent place to begin, our hearts must be recalibrated. 
I think it's the best way I can think of explaining what I was talking about today. And what I meant was, I'm not questioning the salvation of my church. In, in the very same way, if this does question that, it needs to question it for me too. Alright? What I am questioning is our focus and our commitment. Because one of the things I know, I think maybe the, um, the idea is that, that when we... Um, okay, anybody ever done this? Uh, Deer Hunters. Dear hunters, you ever hear about somebody like passing out when they're about to shoot a deer? They get so excited that they just tense up and they just about faint. I've heard of kids doing that before. I heard one kid, you know, his dad telling him, look, you've you, you got to remember to breathe when you're waiting to shoot that deer because you sit there and hold your breath so long you'll pass out. It gets, the little boys get so excited. I think sometimes we kind of conditioned ourselves in that way. That we try not to focus too hard on, on goals and things like that. Because if we do, we'll look up and, um, we'll look up and we will, uh, we will have um, uh, just kind of lost sight of the prize. We'll get so tense about it. And that sometimes maybe we've conditioned ourselves in a very good way that we can't just focus on this one thing, even though it's the most important thing. We can't focus too much on our families, because if we do, we lose centeredness on it and they start to become an idol for us. We can't focus too much on our jobs, even though we want to do a good job, because what we wind up doing is, is becoming a workaholic, and then, then what we're worshiping is really our job, and not the Lord of our lives. This is a situation where this is something so important, even if we take our eyes off it for a moment, we need to be thinking all the time, I've got to retrain myself back on the cross and retrain myself back on the gospel. That may sound like fancy language. I bet if you chew on it for a little while, you can imagine times in which, man, I didn't think about the gospel at all today. You ever have one? I have those days all the time. When I'm so busy, so smoking busy with all the matters, the important things of my life, and I realize, man, I prayed this morning and I read the scriptures and I meditated on something, but I really wasn't thinking about the cross today. Because there were these pressing issues in my life. So I want to be recalibrated today. As a priority this morning, we need to be reminded of the eternal stakes that are attached to the commanded work of the commissioned church. I mean, when we're commissioned to be a church, we're going to talk about church commissioning in so many ways, in so many fashions today. We're going to talk about that. But when we talk about that, we don't ever need to forget, look, our job is not to get together and enjoy each other's fellowship. It's just not. Our job isn't to be a clearinghouse for funerals and marriages. It's not. Our job isn't showers and those. That's not our job. We do those things. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. But that's not why the church was commissioned. The world could have handled those events without the church. The church is commissioned by God to spread the gospel around the globe. I quote him all the time. Douglas Wilson's still the best guy to quote on this. The, God, the church is God's plan A for evangelism and there's no plan B. If we don't spread the gospel, nobody spreads the gospel. The only reason that the church exists is for the propagation of the gospel. And that has eternal stakes. Revelation 7, I'm assuming Revelation 14, 9-11. John writes, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, will all, he, will all, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These... Uh, Worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So the reason we have heaven is why? Excuse me, the reason we have the gospel is why? Because the opposite of the gospel is a world spending an eternity in a searing hell. That hell is very real today. Why go around the globe and spread the gospel? Because until those people hear the gospel, repent of their sins and believe the gospel, they will, without a doubt, go to hell. There's no, there's no other story but this one. And it may not be popular and it's not trendy. And there are all sorts of places where they don't want to hear it, but it doesn't make it less necessary. And it makes it just as necessary in this church 
today. We've got to preach this. Why do we evangelize? Why do we do missions? Because hell is real and people will go there if we do not. There's an eternal matter today. I said that church, I say without a microscopic reservation, that eternity hangs in the balance. What we preach in here today has eternal ramifications. What you believe today has eternal ramifications. What you go out into your job or into your school or into your life and you speak has eternal ramifications. Listen to me. People around us are going to die and go to hell. It is not something we want to believe. It's not something I'm proud of. But it is absolutely true. And they are definitely husbands and wives and sons and daughters of somebody. Brothers and sisters of somebody. And being quite blunt with you, we are the brothers and sisters, husbands or wives, sons or daughters of some of them. We are. This is not just for India, where Emily's been or Laos, where Brindy has been. This is for minds. I'll be quite blunt with you. I can't think of a culture that less looks like the cross than the one we've got right here. There is no insanity, no way of destroying the, the image of God in people that is done in New York City that's not done right here. We don't have to go very far to confront the sins of the world. We don't have to go very far to do that. This is eternal. The eternal fate of all who fail to repent of their sins and believe the gospel, who are not born again, is the fire of an eternal hell. That's the eternal fate of everybody who isn't born again. Sins which stain their lives and personalities will be infinitely atoned for in the lake of fire. See, nobody escapes justice. Nobody escapes it. If mercy is not offered through the cross, if grace does not save, then all that's left is cold-hearted, impartial justice. It's all that's left. It's not some fantasy of retribution from a church left behind in a postmodern culture, because that's the way we're painted, right? If you go out very far into the more postmodern world, hell's a joke. Hell's a fantasy, a fairy tale. It's used to scare children. It's not the way it is. This is the reality. I'll be quite blunt with you. Do not believe John 3.16 if you do not believe the opposite. Do not make our God out to be a liar. Because if He is truthful about John 3.16, He is absolutely truthful about Revelation 14. Absolutely tr truthful. It's not some fantasy of retribution. It's the, theolo the theological and it's the theology and the reality of hell that must drive us to share the truth of Christ around the, the world and around the corner in our neighborhoods. We get to go cool places, into cool cultures. That's awesome. That's a fringe benefit to see some of the things we get to see. But we go there because those people are going to die and go to hell. We go there because it's a rescue mission every time. We go there because the fires are licking at their feet as we speak. And the cutest ones of them, the sweetest people we can see, if they do not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, will die someday and face eternal punishment. We've got to believe that. That's what makes us go. It's also what makes us go out in this community. It's going to be a shame to stand before God at the Bema seat and be accosted with accusations that you knew how lost these people were that I knew how lost these people were and that I didn't care. I didn't care. Without Christ Jesus, all men and women will perish in their sins. As 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now look, this is a verse which I love because it absolutely passionately affirms the deity of Jesus. If you want to believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, 
Go to 1 John 5.20. There's really no way to interpret that other than that's exactly what John is saying. Exactly what he's saying. But it also declares that there's one source of salvation in our Lord and Savior. Not only is He Son of God, but He is the only, He is the true God and eternal life. If you want to live forever, then Jesus is the only source of that. We must be incredibly, incredibly assertive about this fact in a world which refuses to accept the singularity of Christ in salvation. If I stand before people other than you, even in our even in this state, as backwards as we are, by the, by the view of the rest of the world, the rest of the country, if I say, if I go up to Fondren and stand on the streets of Fondren and say that there's only one way to heaven, that is Jesus Christ, guaranteed. If I draw enough attention, somebody's going to disagree with me. Because it's hate speech to say that Jesus is the only way for salvation. It's hateful to say that Muslims through faithful Islam cannot find Christ. That Hindus through faithful Hindu cannot find Christ. That Buddhists through faithfulness to their teachings cannot find Christ. The problem with that thinking, sweet as it might be in our ears... The problem with that is the Bible says the exact opposite. That there's one name in heaven and earth by which men might be saved. One name. Not multiple names. Not multiple paths. There's one way. So that when we go out, we understand this. What we take with us is a natural offense that we cannot outrun and that we cannot outdo or undo. We're going to offend people with this truth. I wish I could spare you that. But people will eventually be offended. There are cultures where they'll listen, gladly listen. But the reality is most won't. Most won't, because it offends them to their very core. First Baptist Church cannot be held hostage by our fear or our self-centeredness, our limited vision or our faltering commitment. We can't be held hostage to anything. The gospel in our midst has to be turned loose for missions and evangelism. It's got to shove every obstacle out of the way. Nobody in this room has the right to hold it back. Especially me. God has His own mind. The gospel has its own theme. It will go where it pleases as the wind goes. Now listen, without a church with a truly bold witness in this community. Hear what I said? A true church without a really bold witness. The people that we see around us every day will be condemned to a sinner's hell. I'm going to be quite blunt with you. When it really comes to being a witness for Christ in this community, I'm not sure any church passes. I'm only responsible for one. I'm not sure any receives a passing grade. We don't just have to worry about India and Africa and Haiti and Honduras. We have to worry about India and Africa and Haiti and Honduras and Laos and everywhere else we're going to go. And we've got to worry about the land right outside our houses. We've got to worry about the house right across the street. It is our responsibility. But now listen. This is the first step. Christ is the only hope for those in this room today. Let's not move any beyond that. Let's not go one step farther. Before we deal with what we do outside these walls, let's deal with what goes on inside these walls and what dwells within these hearts Right now. Because if there's one thing that will derail what God has proclaimed will be unconverted hearts in this room. Once again, not my job to come in and make anyone doubt anything. It's my job to come in and make sure everyone absolutely is affirmed. And there's only one way to do it. It's not an easy way, but it's the only way.
Christ is the only hope for those in this room today, this community, this nation, and around the globe. The gospel is the lifeline that we must preach. We've got to come in every single meeting and truly preach the gospel. Likewise, all in this room will have to answer for their sins. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That we are all still and trouble. The only freedom is through the gospel. In repentance and belief, confessing their sins and trusting Christ with them are judged fairly, finally, and tragically at the great white throne of judgment. There's only two places for the dispensation of sin. Two places. Confession, belief, trusting in Christ, great white throne of judgment. There's not a third path. The knife of the gospel cuts deep today. And we want it to. Every time we come in here, brothers and sisters, my dear family, I want the knife of the gospel to cut us to the quick. Because I don't want to stand before God and think that one got away. One. One's too many. Do you understand that? One. One brother, one sister, one loved one. How many do we have to lose before we care? I'll be blunt with you. One's plenty, isn't it? How many children do we have to lose to hell before we are broken by it? Just one, right? One's enough. How many brothers or sisters, how many husbands or wives? Just one is enough. Christ Jesus, the true God and eternal life, He peers first into our souls today. As we talk about the future of what God's going to do evangelistically and missionally in this church, the first place God looks right now is deep inside each and every one of us. Deep in our hearts. That's where Jesus looks today. He calls down the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He reveals the consequence of sin through the gospel and provides the opportunity to repent and believe today. We are offered sanctuary in Christ Jesus today. Praise Him for that. The fact is that the people in this room who may have never believed the gospel have heard it a thousand times. And yet God's not offended. He's no more offended than He was the first time. God today extends a hand of mercy. An opportunity for sanctuary for unbelievers today to become believers. The mission of the church begins with its family, with the ones it directly influences. It would be a shame to travel around the globe sharing the gospel. A shame. And then stand at the, at the Bema seat of Christ and realize that we lost a brother or we lost a sister. We lost a beloved child. For that reason, the sermon begins with the hearers that must go no farther. For we continue, consider the truth of Luke 24, 45, where the Word says that He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. I'm going to ask that question today. Has Jesus opened your mind and your heart to understand the Scriptures? I can think of no greater description of what it really means to have Jesus Christ indwell us in salvation is that God has opened up that which was once closed. Has He opened up the world of the gospel for you today? That's a call. Please consider it. Please, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, my family, consider it, please. But now we have other things to deal with. More church-wide, but just as important. In Comeback Churches, Ed Stetzer wrote this. He said, It's ironic that most evangelical churches are filled with people who live very much like the world, but look different from it. It should be the exact opposite. We should look similar to those in our community, but act differently. Now, I used Emily as, a, as an example for this. Some of y'all on the band saw this. Uh, most of the time, her running around in, um, in like Indian clothes. Some... some some dress like that, I would would you would definitely go over my daughter with this completely. Lottie Moon famously did exactly the same thing, right? She lived in China and dressed Chinese. 
Almost nobody at the time did. They dressed in a Western fashion because Chinese dress was considered to be part of Eastern corruption. But Lottie realized she fit in better with those around her. She could address them better for the gospel when she dressed the way they did. Now it's commonplace within missional uh, communities for us to dress very much like the people we're trying to minister to. Emily modeled this during her summer mission where she wore native Indian clothing but demonstrated a separate style of life. I continue to pray. That was deeper than clothing and independent of culture. She spent her time trying to look Indian and in some ways learn to act Indian but at the same time absolutely stand out for what was in her heart. That's the missional formula. That's what we want our people to do. For Stetzer, most American Christianity is cultural. It's skin deep, it's window dressing, dressing it's a costume and not a conviction of the heart. And that you can pick out the churchy little kids, but everybody knows what. On the weekends, they're at the party too. They know how to dress to look like a part that's not really who they are inside. As one of my friends in this community said, that he would go to the parties everywhere on the weekends, then he would go to church with them on Sundays and they didn't want to talk to him. He had just seen them Saturday night. But then Sunday morning they would admit to knowing him. Because it would ruin their sterling reputation. They were just as dirty as sin. But they didn't want anybody to know it. What Stetzer says is we've learned to lie and dress and act like we're a whole lot holier than we really are. That what we might need to do is not look. And I'm going to explain to you, please, let me, let me explain it this way. Accepting biblical ideas of modesty, we are at our best we can, when we can wear what the culture around us wears. And I said within reason. I said within reason. Is it okay for, for instance... Let's put it this way. I'll use myself as an example. Many, many, many years ago, when I was here, a couple people mentioned to me, man, you still need to wear a suit. We're trying to attract these kind of people and blah, 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 blah. And I did that. Two people mentioned to me, you still have to wear a suit. And guess what? I'll stop wearing the suit. Turns out that one of them that mentioned to me, a year later, they were going to see all the deacons because I wasn't wearing a suit. Right, Joe? Sure were. One of the very people that put me up to it turned around and... You can figure it out. Those of you who've been here a while. Well, it's it now why do we wear suits? And I think for among the men, one of the things we talked about was this was that it's got nothing to do with what you guys think. It's got everything to do with a certain kind of respect that we have for this pulpit. Do you understand what I mean? For the very same reason. When's the last somebody last person besides the three of us preached out of this pulpit? I can't remember the last time. Somebody besides the three of us got in this pulpit. Can you guys? Do you know why? Because we respect it so much, we don't really trust it to other people very often. It's not that we're not hard on each other, because every once in a while we, we send snide text messages to each other, don't we guys? We do. But we consider it such a privilege to stand in this pulpit in front of you guys, in front of this blessed church, that we just... We've, we started wearing the suits just simply out of wanting to convey a respect for it. But I absolutely get it. Now, you're never going to see Brother Tony come up here, you know, in his jeans with a crew neck t-shirt and his sleeve showing, if you know what I mean. Um, I'm not Stephen Furtick, and I wouldn't want to be, okay, to be honest with you. I'm not going to take it that far, but there absolutely might be a day where Brother Tony and Brother Con, Brother Brian hang up the suits not out of a disrespect for the pulpit, we hang up the suits because we realize we're trying to not be... Because there's some people that may not listen to you if you wear a suit. They, they have bad connotations about it. In the very same way, I've got the beard. And I told you guys, if the beard ever became a problem in the pulpit, you know what I would do? I'd shave the beard. Do you know why? Because the gospel is more important than facial hair. Facial hair is trivial. It's nonsensical. I'm not going to make decisions from this pulpit to try to please anybody because once you please somebody, you're going to offend somebody else. 
But what I will do is spiritually and deeply and prayerfully make decisions about what I wear, for instance, in the pulpit or what we do within this church to try to draw in lost people to the best of a way that we can do it without compromising other aspects of the gospel. In the very same way, if I went to... If, I want, if, if the Lord moved me to, uh, to China tomorrow to plant a church, you know what I better learn to do? Speak Chinese or I'm not going to get very far preaching in China without being able to speak Chinese. The very same way. Makes sense, doesn't it? So within reason, we're going to do that. Maintain a high cultural IQ. One of those things that we'll do is either we won't have the cultural IQ. When I was little, um, what, okay, who's been Southern Baptist their entire life? Okay, some of y'all aren't quite old enough. The old Southern Baptists are definitely old enough. When we were little, what did Southern Baptists never do? We didn't dance. At all, remember? Dancing was the most wicked thing that a person could do. And preachers preached sermons on dancing. They absolutely would beat their pulpit to death over dances because they were considered to be so wicked so so very wicked it was show folks it wasn't real it wasn't real people in our churches and I was there were living just as wicked as the dancers but they made themselves feel more holy because they said but I don't dance but you do everything else and you hide it so dreadfully well. Maintaining a high cultural IQ, which we do in the mission field. When Emily went to India, before she went there, she was expected to learn a lot about India and to spend her time learning about the culture so that she couldn't fit in with the culture but be able to address the culture. I'm going to be honest with you. It won't do you any good in this room right now to watch... Go back and watch every single episode of The Walking Dead. Kyle, it's probably a character flaw in us, to be honest with you. But if you're going to address somebody in their 20s, you probably better know who Daryl Dixon is. It ain't going to hurt you, is it? Not at all. Not at all. Because they're speaking a language, and you don't speak that language. You don't. Once again, do you have to go back and watch every show? No. It's a ridiculous idea. It's ridiculous idea to ever watch any of it. Probably none of it helps you. But having a cultural IQ in this day and age is the currency. Is the currency. You're never going to get past first base if you have not engaged the culture in some way. Even to discredit it is enough. In the very same way, if you're going to witness to a Muslim, what would you want to know? What do Muslims think? The religion of the 21st century in the United States is popular culture in which everybody speaks exactly the same language. Hey, do I make mistakes about it all the time? I don't even know what their stuff is called half the time. But I'm trying, aren't I? Trying to engage it because I need to know it. Because the day in which I stop being able to speak this cultural language is the day in which I stop being able to engage this culture. I'll just be preaching at the nursing homes after that. We want to be able to go where the harvest is, right? So, what else? And cultivate relationships outside of our churches with the lost. It's another problem we've got. And I'm going to say we do it. I'm just, these are just diagnoses. All they are. Okay, diagnoses. The reality is this. is There's a lot of people hanging out in churches that don't really have two friends that don't go to church with them or somewhere. Their whole lives are spent surrounded, insulated by the church. And that they're not actively trying to cultivate relationships, friendships with people who do not believe what they believe. It's very, very hard to go out and be successful in sharing the gospel if you don't know very many lost people or very many people who would claim to be lost. We've got to cultivate those friendships. We've got to do that. Outside of our church with us, recognizing the observations of Jesus in John 4, 35, which say, do you not say there are 
Yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus' response to us today. Look up and see the fields are white. They are everywhere. There's, we are surrounded by low-hanging fruit. We're surrounded by apples that are just ready to fall into our hands. They're so ripe. We just got to open our eyes. Now, this is said by a man that goes around blind all the time. What I'm saying today, I'm as convicted about as I hope you are. Our focal passage describes the church as it must be when the will of God is fulfilled. That's what made me so convicted. Was I, I went back and read this. I said, my, my, said, Lord, the church doesn't look like that. I don't mean this church. I mean the church universal. The whole global church doesn't look like this yet. And this is the mission. What's it got to look like? So, look. This is a reaction on the part of the redeemed to the condition of the world and the ripeness of the harvest in every community and country. Why does it look like this? Because all of a sudden, church members, redeemed people, believers' eyes worldwide pop open and then everybody says, Oh my goodness, look! They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Hearts are breaking in love. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because we can do it out of spite sometimes, don't we? You ever shared the gospel out of spite? Probably. I mean when you see somebody and your heart is just overthrown because you realize the depths of their agony in being lost. The depths of it. That God starts to open those eyes. I remember, I realized this one a few years ago. I was eating... Um, with my wife and my family at the Huddle House in Collins. I love Huddle House, but it's always a rough joint. You know what I mean? Everybody looks hungover at Huddle House 24-7. And the kid that was waiting on us this one time, I had taught in high school, and she handed me my plate like this, and I could see the needle tracks in her arm. Now, she'd come from a rough lifestyle that leads just to that. That's what it leads to. But my heart broke right there to the point that I didn't have words, to be honest with you. I didn't have words. There was so much emotion. That's, that's the ending of people without the gospel. Sooner or later, it's total self-deprecation. Self-destruction. When the time is complete and the world has reached its end, the world will look, church will look like Revelation 7. It will be the innumerable church. And it is the mission of believers to make this a reality. We are tasked with winning the world. I know it's daunting. We're so tiny and so far away. But guess what? We still think about what this church did through the power of Christ and His Gospel just this year. Just where people were able to go. A teeny tiny little church like this. The prophesied church is the product of God's will. The focus of the work of the saved. It's given for God's ultimate glory. It's the believer's greatest blessing and the hope of the condemned of this world. This is hope today. To completely realize the prophecy which our Lord has given us, the church must be, according to the focal passage, one, vast in number. It's huge. Great multitude. Representative of every nation. From every nation. Involve every tribe. From all tribes. Include all ethnic groups. And all peoples and languages. Praise in all languages. Worship and boldly declare Christ Jesus as the only Savior of the world. And with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's their worship. And final, sacrificial in its love for Jesus, the Gospel, and the family of God. Sacrificial. As a people, we all want to see our local congregation grow in faithfulness and numbers. I want to see that. I want to look up one of these days after all the struggles and all the problems. 
You're suffering with me learning how to preach the gospel, really learning the gospel. You're suffering while the team was brought together and the leaders were called. You're suffering while we worked out all the bugs and all the immaturities and all the other things that hold us back. All those things done. And to look up one of these days and see the building just swell. Not because we drew a crowd, but because the gospel was being preached and souls were being saved. So much so that we could not baptize them all and we could not disciple them all. But we have the challenges of real, true biblical growth where you're actually making believers and not giving baths. We're actually making believers in Christ. I want to see that. Now what's being asked of us is not that we just, not just that we can commit to witness, but that we grow the church everywhere because that's what it means to meet the debt of the Great Commission is that the church everywhere grows. We're part of that. Does it mean we reach the entire world? I won't put anything beyond our God and His power. But at the very least, this church has a share. This church has a share. Stetzer explained in Spiritual Warfare Missions, just as the true fruit of an apple tree is not an apple, but another tree... The true fruit of a small group is not a new Christian, but another group. The true fruit of a church is not a, a, a new group, but a new church. The true fruit of a leader is not a follower, but a new leader. The true fruit of an evangelist is not a convert, but new evangelists. Whenever this principle is understood and applied, the results are dramatic. The idea is this, that when we start to see this grow, my goodness, the impetus is not going to be just to build a bigger building, but to build other churches. Nobody in the Scriptures was called to build a big building. Anywhere were they? Wherever the church grew, the church multiplied. The church replicated itself. The greatest call in the Bible is the call to plant churches and for those churches to plant more. How do we do this? The only answer that I have for you is that God will provide and lead. I have no plan for this. I can't sit and say, well, this is what you do and then this. No, everybody's got a book about that mess. And the reality is they all fail in the field. They all fail. Because the world they were written about has changed. By the time they could get the book written and published, the world changed. I don't even know what kind of world we're going to be planting churches into. I can tell you this much. I know where the first one's going to be. On a beach in northern Haiti called Carinage. It's probably not even its real name because every name they tell you is usually one they made up, right? It's probably got another name. Forever we thought Mount of Olives was named that the thing and the guy that did the t-shirt invented that name. That wasn't even the name of that. That's the way Haitians are. But on that beach, we've been meeting with those folks for a long time. They don't really have a church. They call it a church. It's not even a church. When Brother Russell and I go at Christmas, we're going to commission that church. We're going to pray over that church. And we're going to lay hands on, the lead, on leaders in that church. They're going to be lay leaders. But we're going to lay hands on them. Because when we leave Kyle, when we leave Brian, it's really going to be a church. And guess what? There's a lot of responsibility that goes with that. Is it going to cost you a penny? It may never cost you a single nickel. You know what it's going to cost you? Prayer. Real prayer. We're going to do this not because I'm right. We're going to do this because I don't see any other way than this is what God commands. The people of that village will never be better until they really have a church. They really have somebody there to, sh- to really bring the gospel. They're never going to be better. It's a village so overrun with voodoo. You can feel the presence of the devil in that, in that village. You can throw a rock from their church, what they call a church, to the witch doctor's house. There's where we are. How do we do it? I have no details, only a deep biblical understanding that this is what God commands that faithful churches must do. Tim Keller wrote this, The continual planning of new congregations is the most crucial strategy for the growth of the body of Christ. There are four reasons that I believe that churches like ours must be involved in efforts to plan other churches. Like I said, this is not a plan as much as it is a motivational sermon to get you behind 
and then let God reveal the plan of action. As a counter to decision evangelism, which will ensure that men and women have the opportunity to be truly born again. There are tons of people, people in this room, who one day God broke your heart, enabled you to make a decision to follow Christ, and it was absolutely legitimate and you were born again at that moment. And there are other people for whom it was a little bit more complicated than that, wasn't it? The journey was a little longer than you ever thought it would be. A little harder. The Great Commission says in Matthew 28, 19-20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The complete directive of Christ means to have the church active and obedient in every community. For us to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, for us to baptize them, these are functions of what? The church. This is what we do, what we've always done from the first century onward. This is why we exist. The Great Commission cannot be completed by sending evangelists out to preach the gospel and then come home. It can be started that way, but it can't be completed that way. Where the church, where the church is not vibrant, evangelism is failing by definition. Where there's not a church for people to connect with, we can go preach the gospel in Karanaj, uh, Brian, or, or, or Kyle all day long. And unless they've got a church to connect with, they will not grow one step from the time you preach till you come back the next year. They'll do nothing but fail. Churches must be revitalized or replanted to fulfill God's will through the gospel. One of those other things we've learned is almost everywhere we go in the, in the, in the world, their church is there. There are just an incredible number of them that simply do not preach the gospel. That just because it's got a steeple on it, we don't even have that, because it had a steeple on it, it doesn't make it Christian. Just because it claims to be something does not mean that it is something. Paul's instruction in Titus 1.5 reveal this, uh, what, what Paul said when he said, this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I direct you. That's, it, that's his words to Titus. Where Paul went and preached, he made sure somebody stayed behind, or he did it himself, and established a church. He didn't trust it biologically just grow. People just suddenly realize, you know what, we need to be getting together and sitting in these straight little rows and, and singing songs. That doesn't occur to lost people. Paul made sure that it was put in order and that elders were appointed. Many people make decisions for Christ, and some of these decisions lead to legitimate new birth, there's no doubt. Unfortunately, some are merely the beginning of a journey to repentance and belief, which requires the fellowship of a discipling community in order to complete the trick. Some people are going to hear it, and after a long journey, they're going to believe it. And that is okay, because all we really want is for people to believe it and be born again. That's all we care about. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care if it takes 30 years. It doesn't matter. We want them to hear it and believe it because we love them so much. When people, for instance, young adults, walk this path of evangelism accompanied by a worshiping and teaching community of saved people, the likelihood of completing the journey must be higher than if they merely proclaim Christ and are carelessly allowed to walk away. We see this among our young people, don't we? They go someplace like a mission trip or a youth camp or, a, or an evangelism rally, and they'll embrace, and then a month later, we don't know where they are. Two months later, we've lost track of them. Why? Because they need the church. Hearing the Word is vital. But hearing the Word and not having it taught and questions answered and prayers offered, just not enough. Why do we nag them? You've got to go to church. Because without the church... You are seed scattered on the sidewalk that very well might sprout, but it'll probably be gobbled up and carried away. It's why the church is... 
All we do today when we talk about this idea is affirm the notion of just how important, folks, the church really is. Missiologist C. Peter Wagner said this, he said, Planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. We want to reach an area, plant a church. You want to reach some lost, reach some lost people, right in the middle of them, plant a church. Or get them to come to yours. Two options. Two options. Bring them in here or bring the church to them. There really isn't another. The goal is not a prideful attempt to take credit for the number of churches planted. Big churches do this all the time. I'm so sick of talking to those kind of guys that show up with a crew neck church and they're always talking about all the things they do. And they never admit a failure. I know the mission field pretty well by now. Guess what? It's all failures. Dams break. And you've got to cut the trip short. You get flat tires, don't you guys? People get sick. That's the mission field. And all they want to talk about is all the stuff they've done. All the things they've led. I'm not talking about that. There's nothing for us to brag about in this. But a legitimate desire to reach the world for Christ. What we've got here is we're expressing a legitimate desire that the world's got to be reached. Two, new generations of believers are more likely to be reached and to attend uh, new or newly branded congregations. You see churches doing this nowadays, changing their name. I know we, we're, we think it's obnoxious, but the reality is it works. It just works. I'm sorry. I'm not telling you to change your name. Now go in there. Chill out. But the reality is it works. It seems silly to me to even talk about this, but data completely you know, supports this assertion. Keller wrote this, Dozens of denominational studies have confirmed that the average new church gains most of its members 60 to 80% from the ranks of people who are not attending any worshiping body. While churches over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 to 90% of their members by transfer from other congregations. So how do you reach people that aren't going to church anywhere? You can do it within your church, but you've got to plan for it, you've got to implement things, you've got to make it intentional. And if you can't or you're not willing to do that, you just about got to go out and do what I said before. Find where they group and start a church in the middle of it. Find where they go and put one in the middle of them. There's a reason why churches like ours and communities like ours trade members, right? It's called transfer growth. But yet the same number of lost people tend to remain. Now, I don't have a number for that, but we can all feel it, can't we? Anybody in this room feel like we're close to reaching this entire town? I don't. Anybody? I've been here 11 years. I don't feel like I'm one step close to reaching this town. No, one step. Because we're worried about this one or that one or somewhere else that moves from their church to ours. Which is great. I'm glad people were brought here. But now that we're together, you know what we need to worry about? All those out there with nobody. If we are to reach the unchurched in Smith County, it may take radical measures to do this. Paul expressed his dedication to winning the loss by all necessary means when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. At the same time, if we are to find a way to truly reach the millions in the mission field, and I said millions instead of billions because billions is just intimidating, um, especially in the United States, it may take planting new churches are replanting existing congregations in order to meet the needs of generations that have yet to come to maturity or to Christ. It may very well mean that some of these kooky churches that go out and change their name to reach a community around them have not sinned against their forefathers, but done exactly what God was instructing them to do. It may have been change or perish. Change or perish. It reminds me of a story when I was in China um, that um, a guy had started a church there in China and not only did he conduct the entire church in English, but they sang out of the Baptist hymnal in English. That's the guy who wasn't getting it and wasn't ever going to get it. Because it was about a way of doing things that was greater than Christ that he had elevated to doctrine the traditions of men. 
Three, the body of Christ in every town and city needs constant revitalization. It's not a call to only seek new things in the church, music, methods, ideas, but a legitimate call to renew hearts and minds to the mission of the cross and to recommit the efforts of the church to spread the gospel. This is not about how we do things. I'm just here to tell you, there's no magic song we can sing to get everybody to come. There's no magic way I can dress to get everybody to come. There's no way you can organize your pews or get rid of them to get everybody to come. No kind of lights or time of the day or any of those other things. You may change things to better meet the needs of your congregation. Do it. Don't have sacred cows. But the reality is there's no magic pill we can take in this church that's going to fill these pews up overnight. It doesn't happen. And if it does, it's probably extraneous. It's probably cult of personality and not legitimate transformation. The planting of new churches has a revitalizing effect on the existing churches in the area as well. If done without competition, with encouragement, new members can be brought to every congregation. New energy, new enthusiasm can be infectious as old sins and corrupt thinking is extirpated from the congregation. Now consider Paul's writings to Corinth. Think about it, about 50 A.D. or so, Paul plants the Corinthian church. By about 54 A.D., Paul's writing the letter to 1 Corinthians, which means he's left, things have gone south, he's come back, and now he's got all his information, and he can kind of write to them. Look at what had gone wrong. He confronts in 1 Corinthians, um, in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, in chapter 1, 10 through 17, divisions and factions. Some people were hanging on to Apollos, some people were hanging on to Paul, and they were fighting about it. I like the old preacher better, I like the new preacher, let's kill each other. Ever heard of a church doing that? They all do, to some extent. They liked, well, I liked Brother So-and-so better. I'm sorry. The toleration of sexual immorality. Chapter 5, verses 1-13. through 13, There was sexual immorality in the church that was like four years old. They hadn't been Christians long enough to get into that mess. And they're already corrupt. So how, how fast can the church corrupt? Really, really, really fast, guys. And I'll be honest with you, old sometimes means corrupt in the church game. Lawsuits among church members. They were suing each other. What a disaster for the gospel. How could those guys go out in town and share? They couldn't. Because the house wasn't in order. Unholy and destructive sexual practices within marriage. They couldn't even be together as man and wife and get it right. They were a disaster. The limits of and the definition of Christian liberty. They had to define what can you really do? What, kind of, what does liberty mean? Can liberty go to the point of being destructive of others? They had to deal with these issues. Battles over the style and substance of worship. Ever heard of a church fighting over worship? All of them. Every one of them does. Unless the battle's been won, they've already, they're going to fight over it. Unless somebody prevail, they're going to fight over it. That's chapters 11 through 14 all deal with worship. And false teaching concerning the resurrection of the dead in Christ. What could be more essential than the return of Christ. And they messed that up. Paul both planted churches and cared for them after their planting with his shepherding these congregations. That's going to be the commitment when we do what I believe God's leading us to do in Haiti. What lots of us have prayed about, believe what God's leading us to do. It's not going to be about anything bigger than the fact that we're going to have to take responsibility for these people. Because if we leave them alone and let them do what they want to do, what's going to happen? This right here. It's going to be a disaster in a year. Somebody will kill somebody in that church over nothing in a year. Don't forget where we plant churches. Don't forget the world you plant churches into. He what do you care for them with their planting, with his shepherding, these congregations? Characterized in Luke 15, Luke's words in Acts 15 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What did Paul do after he planted them? He went back and he strengthened them. Our job for the congregation and others is to have them strengthened and growing in obedience to the Lord. 
You want a testament to how much you love the Lord? See another church somewhere planted and growing in Christ because you've cared for it, you've prayed for it, you've given to its health. See what God will do when we're really faithful. Planting churches is evidence of self-centeredness in our church or of kingdom-centeredness. This is, this is what really matters today. Are we going to be a self... And Look, I am not rebuking you. We care about each other. We're allowed to care about each other. We're encouraged to care about each other. We're supposed to love each other as a real family. But we all know in real families, mom and daddy can get so enamored with their children that they can't see their faults, can't they? Ever met anybody like that? So enamored with their children that they can't punish them. Ever met anybody like that? So enamored with their children that, that they would literally destroy the world to make their child happy. I can't tell you how many times I've seen it just at the school over there. Just at the school. You could win the next nine state boys baseball championships, Kyle. And if the wrong one over there wasn't getting to play, they'd try to get your job. Wouldn't they? Because they can care only about themselves. Didn't matter. Obviously, the proof is in the pudding. If you're winning nine straight championships, you're doing a good job, brother. you got a good team. But you don't play the right one. And they don't care. Because they only care about themselves. We've all seen these things go horribly wrong. Look, no one should or would want to hurt the church of which they are part. Nobody in this room, especially me, wants to hurt this church. And listen, planning churches can be done outside the will and purpose of God. There's no doubt about that. I can get up here and even talk about this and God can take me to the woodshed five minutes afterwards. It doesn't mean it's wrong to plant churches, but He recalibrates me back to His will. I can speak arrogance. I, arrogantly. I can speak presumptuously. Okay? There's no doubt about that. I said in the wrong way and at the wrong time. We can do that. There's no doubt. I know in this church I've done things the right thing and the wrong way at the wrong time. I know I've done it. I'm absolutely guilty of that. Churches are called to replicate themselves. We've got to know that. That's absolutely true. So we shouldn't take this as an excuse to do nothing, as many churches would. Lots of churches, most churches in the Southern Methodist Convention, would sit back and do absolutely nothing because they think it's an option to do nothing instead of doing the wrong thing. That it's better to, it's better to, not, to make no mistake than make a mistake. But the reality is it's better to make a mistake as my mama used to say in the teaching business, it's better to beg forgiveness and ask permission. Sometimes, yep's right. Yep is right, baby. Not for everything. Now, where daddy's concerned, you listen to him. But the reality is, if we get together and we pray and we give and we serve and we struggle and we do everything we can do, if we are wrong, if we are wrong, You'd be surprised what God will do even if we are wrong. If we're seeking Him with all our hearts and we just misunderstood. Because just you know what? Everybody who goes off on a mission trip and the tire goes flat starts thinking that they were, they were wrong. Don't we? Or you get sick, you think you were wrong to come. It's human nature to think we're wrong when something bad happens. It doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong. We might have gone at the wrong time. We might have took the wrong train. But it doesn't mean God won't bless. We're required to be faithful and obedient to the cause of the gospel. If we're not willing to do this, then we can hardly call ourselves a New Testament church or a Southern Baptist church. I, I remind people all the time, the only reason for the Southern Baptist Convention was missions. was evangelism and the planning of churches. The only reason. We got together to do this big old thing, 15 plus million members, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars given to missions why? Because we knew we couldn't do global missions without, broader, without a broader coalition. To be Southern Baptist means to be missional. I've, taught, I've had that, that fight with people in this church. They don't believe in missions, they're not Southern Baptists. 
End of discussion. They don't believe in sharing the gospel. They're not Southern Baptist. They're not a New Testament church. To be honest with you, they're probably not Christians. Just to be blunt with you. The reason for the complexity and beauty of our extended convention is for the causes of missions and evangelism as felt through the diversity of our global efforts and the consistency with which Southern Baptist churches plant other churches, partner with sister churches, revitalize themselves, and grow with the gospel. I want to go back to it just real fast. I know I'm over, but, but, but excuse me today. Plant other churches, partner with sister churches. These are things we're trying to do right now. Partnering with them, revitalize ourselves. Folks, we better have an eye on ourselves all the time. I'm not talking about throwing away baby with the bathwater. I'm not talking about being disrespectful to any, any um, age group within your church. I'm not talking about that. Don't put words in my mouth. But what I'm saying is this. If you start to feel like the way you're doing things isn't, isn't making it, you better change. Maybe you haven't paid attention. But I've changed the way I prepare and the way I preach a hundred times in 11 years. Just when it starts to get easy, God changes how I go about doing it. Because He's refining it. Because it was never good enough to start with. It's not good enough right now. The way we do things isn't good enough to meet the needs of the world around us for the gospel. So we better be looking all the time. That's everybody. I want a grandma in this room. To come up to me sometimes and say, Brother Tony, we need to do whatever we can do to reach the young people in this community. That's what I want. I want a grandma whose grandkids are grown, but who cares about teenagers. I want a grandpa who's just as rough as a cop to grab me with tears in his eyes and say, look, we want to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. There's success, folks. The goal for FBC Mize is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.23 when he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That they may share with them in its blessings. Everything we do, we do today not to please the pastor or follow the leaders or adhere to the vision of, the, of a church member or meet the needs of a select group or the entire church, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ our only motivation. Everything we do, every missionary, every time we share the gospel, everything that we are as a church is for the sake of the gospel. That's why God has blessed us with this. Now I'm asking you to do today, surrender yourself to pray. Commit yourself to support. And let's continue the efforts to reach this world with the gospel. Beginning with the faces we see every day.